I think that was a rock star welcome. (laughs) Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the London School of Economics for this afternoon's event, which is being hosted jointly by our European Institute and our Student Union's German Society. My name is Minou Shafiq, and I am the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. And it is a great honor for me to welcome Dr. Ursula von der Leyen here to the LSE today. As I'm sure you are aware, she is Germany's Minister of Defense, and she has served in the German federal cabinet since 2005. In previous roles, she was Minister of Labor and Social Affairs, and then Minister for Family Affairs, Senior Citizens, Women and Youth, before taking up her current role in 2013. I think there are a few politicians who have the range that she has achieved in her political career, from rethinking Germany's and Europe's defense policy to transforming family policy in German. So she's gone from tanks to toddlers. And I think very few politicians can achieve so much on such a broad range of issues. I'm also especially delighted to welcome Dr. Ursula von der Leyen back to, back to the LSE because, as some of you may know, she was a student here in the 1970s. And I think, like many students at the LSE, uh, I think very much enjoyed her time here. And it's a special pleasure to welcome back an alumni of the school. And uh, I also wanted to particularly congratulate the LSE German Society, the Student Society, for the coup of getting her back today. So congratulations for that. So uh, let me now just say a few housekeeping matters. For those using Twitter, uh, the hashtag for today's event is, at, is hashtag LSE Europe. I'd ask you to please turn your phones to silence so as not to disrupt the event. And as usual, we will um, try and podcast this event afterwards, assuming no technical difficulties. After uh, Dr. Lyon Lyon speaks, we will have questions and answers, uh, and I will chair that uh, question and answer period. So with that, let me turn to Dr. Ursula von der Leyen to deliver her lecture entitled European Common Security and Defense Policy. Over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dame Minouche Shafiq. Ladies and gentlemen, dear students, Thank you very much for inviting me um, to this meeting here, Rethinking Europe. I want to start with Winston Churchill. (laughs) He gave a famous speech in 1946 in Zurich, and uh, I cite him. I wish to speak to you today about the tragedy of Europe, this noble continent the home of all the great parent races of the Western world, the fountain of Christian faith and Christian ethics. It is the origin of most of the culture, the arts, philosophy, and science, both of ancient and modern time. If Europe were once united in the sharing of its common inheritance, there would be no limit to the happiness, to the prosperity, and the glory which its three or four hundred million people would enjoy. Yet it is from Europe that have sprung that series of frightful nationalistic worlds originated by Teutonic nations in their rise to power, which we have seen in in this 20th century and even in our own lifetime wreck the peace 
and mar the prospects of all mankind. End of citation. Europe we live in today, from London to Lisbon, from Berlin to Bucharest, is a unique historic achievement. It is the most successful peace project our continent ever saw. 100 years ago, the First World War ended. Millions of soldiers had been killed, millions more mutilated. Only two decades later, an even more destructive war ranted. Nearly the whole continent was in ruins. After the victory of the Nazis, over the Nazis, for which millions gave their lives, everyone hoped there would be lasting peace and freedom to heal these wounds. But our continent once again was torn apart by the Iron Wall. And it was a continent in fear. Fear that the Cold War we lived in could turn into a hot war at any time. That was the moment when the idea of an integrated Europe started. The founders believed that only when the countries could be, would be closely bound together, wars between them could be avoided. Today, Europe is unified and a continent of peace, stability, and freedom. War inside the European Union is impossible even to imagine. But it's true, Europe is at a crucial junction. Rethinking Europe is necessary. We need new ideas, a new momentum, a new determination to strengthen the unified Europe. A Europe that leaves room for proud national states to keep their identity, and that at the same time takes good care of the big topics, big topics like climate change, like migration, like the common market, security. I was appointed as a defense minister four years ago. Just imagine, if you had invited me four years ago to give a lecture here, and I would have told you at that time that Russia was going to a next Crimea and to start a hybrid war in the eastern Ukraine, a war which is smoldering till today, just four years ago, if I would have told you that a terrorist group called ISIL would emerge and not only terrorize the Middle East, but also shake our open society at the core. I would have told you four years ago that more than 65 million people were going to be displaced, fleeing war, fleeing terror, poverty. If I would have told you that our values of tolerance of an open society would be challenged, and that Europe was going to be questioned with the United Kingdom leaving the Union, well, you would have probably told me that I'm crazy, or you would have asked what kind of substance I would have smoked. (laughs) (laughs) 
was Europe ready to cope with all these challenges? Not at all. Not at all. And in my topic, my subject, the defense matters, Europe had almost no structures, no procedures, almost no nothing. I'll give you an example. At the same time where ISIL was emerging in Syria, Iraq, at the same time the Ebola crisis hit. You might remember it. This was a crisis that was screaming for European answer. But as I said, we had no structures, no procedures, therefore no European answer. I was hanging on the phone at that time. I was calling my colleagues, 27 different phone numbers, 27 different phone calls, 27 times the same question, how many soldiers are you sending? How many hospital beds? Where are you going? What are you doing? It was a shame. And at the very end, there was no European answer and many, many national ones. Those were the months that taught me that we Europeans, we really have to get our act together, that we have to change something. And I was lucky at that time, because hidden in the so-called Lisbon Treaty, the Lisbon Treaty has been signed in 2007, hidden in it was the so-called permanent structured cooperation, which is a name for a European defense union. It has been a sleeping beauty. It has been written down, it was written down on paper within the Lisbon Treaty, but it had never come to life for good reasons. One reason was that our British friends blocked everything that looked like a deeper European integration I give you an example. I tried to start a European medical command, which is small and necessary. And they said, yes, medical command is okay. But if you call it a European medical command, it's a no. We will not accept it. And the second reason why it never came to life was that our Eastern European friends said, Europe and defense, just forget it. We have NATO. We don't need anything else. Then came the year 2016 with multiple, multiple political blows. First, there was a migration crisis that almost tore Europe apart, and it's still not over, the conflict. Then there was in June, unfortunately, the Brexit referendum. We're still sad about it. And Europe kind of slipped into a deep depression. And then, in November, there were the U.S.-American presidential election with a president-elect who said NATO is obsolete. And to be honest, these were the wake-up calls for Europe that were necessary. And as my French colleague said, never waste a good crisis. We were in a deep crisis. Never waste the deep, good crisis. It was the crisis we needed to finally go down the road towards a real European defense union. Europe has to become more independent and self-reliant. It has to be ready to invest and engage into a force for peace. Because if our neighborhood is stable and prosperous, 
we are doing better, so it's in our own interest. We started the European Defense Union in December last year. For the very first time, we made substantial mutual commitments in European foreign and security policy. Now we need to keep the ball rolling. I want to be clear on some issues. It is no competition to NATO. The European Defense Union is no competition to NATO. It is complementary to NATO. NATO will always be collective defense, the so-called Article 5, always be collective defense. NATO will always be deterrence and protection of our own territory. But there are other challenges that are calling for a European answer where I do not see NATO. Africa, our neighbor, is a classical example. I do not see NATO there, but I see a lot of European Union and European answers that are needed in our neighborhood. And I see topics where Europe is asked to give an answer, like terror, like poverty, climate change, human trafficking, corruption, just to name some. And the European answers have to be manifold. First of all, of course, there are cases where it is necessary for us to initially focus on hard military force. As an example, the fight against terror, negotiation attempts are futile. I haven't forgotten the picture, the images of the attempted genocide with the Jesuits. You may remember those pictures four years ago. In other words, ISIL does not negotiate. ISIL does decapitate human beings. It was therefore right to forge the coalition against terror, our joint action, that resulted in ISIL suffering military defeat. However, and that's the other side of the coin, there is no such thing as a purely military shortcut leading towards a stable and sustainable peace order. We have gained a lot of experience in those fields in Europe over many decades in the Balkans and Afghanistan, in Mali, in Syria and Iraq. In the long run, we will only achieve victory if we manage to establish political and social stability. Because it is clear that military interventions cannot prevent the radicalization of entire generations of young people. Violent extremism primarily thrives where politics and government have failed, where poverty, where marginalization, exclusion, where those phenomena are the order of the day. And that is where we must start to give a comprehensive European answer. Because we are convinced we need both. We need defense on one side. On the other side, we need development and we need reconciliation. That is the comprehensive approach that is describing the inner character of the European defense. Just to give you some examples, we've learned our lessons, for example, in Iraq. After a battle to drive ISIL out of a specific region, we can only win the hearts and the minds of the people of this region if we immediately bring food, water, electricity, reconstruction of the houses, jobs, 
and so on and so forth. Or if you think of a family in Mosul, what use is it to a family in Mosul if it's freed from terror? If then they will only starve. And on the other hand, it's the same story. What use is it to help a farmer in Mali to install an irrigation system only for him to be slaughtered by, by Al-Qaeda? You need them both in the conflict zones. What use is it to the young woman in Afghanistan to finish her law degree, which would have been unthinkable 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, unthinkable that a woman is studying law in Kabul. But what use is it for her if she will only despair at the wall of corruption and discrimination afterwards? And the question that intrigues me the most is what will be the consequences of the fact that the average age in Niger is 14 years and in the United Kingdom is 40 years and in Europe is 43 years. Europe must deal with all these questions that are in our immediate neighborhood. The European nations are and will continue to be the largest contributors to the UN budget. We invest more than the rest of the world combined in the humanitarian aid. And it worries me when I hear about the budget cuts in economic development and uh, development aid in the United States. We will have to increase, on the other hand, our military interoperability and investment in the European Defense Union because the European color is needed in our world. Churchill ended his speech in 1946. Citation. I must now sum up the propositions which are before you. Our constant aim must be to build and fortify the strength of the United Nations. Under and within that world concept, we must recreate the European family in a regional structure called, it may be, the United States of Europe. In all this urgent work, France and Germany must take the lead together. Great Britain, the British Commonwealth of Nations, mighty America, and I trust Soviet Russia, must be the friends and sponsors of the new Europe and must champion its right to live and shine. Therefore, I say to you, let Europe arise. And he said that in 1946. Ladies and gentlemen, most of you are the next generation of Europeans. You decided to study here in London for good reason. It is Europe's most global city. So you will have a huge task for the future. You are the keeper of the European dream. And you are the bond and the link between the United Kingdom and the European Union. So make this continent your Europe. Thank you so much. Okay. Would you like to stand? Or stand? I stand. You stand? Very good. All right. 
Very good. All right, we've got lots of questions. How about I'm going to take questions three at a time, if that's all right. That's fine. Yeah. So, um, gentleman in the back, woman right here, and the one next to her, the two, two women there. Thank you, Minister. Nasser Kalawun, originally from Lebanon, and occasional commentator on BBC and Deutsche Welle as well. Um, I believe four years ago you, vi- you visited Lebanon in your capacity as defense minister. Last month you were in Jordan. Um, your country received over a million Syrian refugees. In front of my house in Lebanon there are about 35 Syrian refugees camping in a, in a very not a, a healthy uh, situation. Uh, my question to you that uh, sympathies and help as done by the UK and Germany is, is very much, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, commended. Uh, but uh, on the Security Council, there are two countries, China and Russia. Russia is bombing now Syria. So do you think that European security can be, uh, you know, uh, lived and been a, a dream with uh, the flow of refugees and with them, the terror agents, to threaten, uh, uh, you know, countries and uh, uh, streets in Berlin and in London without naming the people who cause the flow, you know. You name it ISIL, rightly, but ISIL doesn't have a political agenda. Russia does. China does. So can you comment on these two countries' uh, situation in the Security Council and in the humanitarian relief? If you know how many refugees are uh, uh, Russia or China have taken from Syria, I'd be happy to know. Okay. Thank you very much. I will take two uh, right here. Please introduce yourself uh, with a question. Thank you very much for this inspiring talk, Minister. My name is Charlotte Matern. I'm actually studying at the Hardy School of Governance in Berlin and currently, as part of my professional year, actually working at the Federal Ministry of Defense in the Policy Department. <laughs> and she came all the way to London yeah. to ask you a question. <laughs> um, so I'm personally actually very interested in the evolution of the EU um, defense policy, so PASCO, as you also mm-hmm. introduced in your speech. And I thought um, it was very interesting that you said that you think it's no competition to NATO, but if you, for instance, look at the Munich Security Conference, where uh, Jens Stoltenberg actually said that um, although he sees that PESCO has the opportunity to strengthen the NATO, the European NATO pillar, he does um, believe that there might be a risk of duplication. So my question deals with um, what mechanisms could be put mm-hmm. into place to um, actually avoid potential duplications, or could... Um, could there actually be mechanisms that the two pillars could actually mutually benefit each other, if that's possible? Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Okay. And next to you. Yeah, Anna, oops, Anna Becker, I'm a political scientist. Um, I don't work in the ministry yet. <laughs> so <laughs> I was... Dead. Dead. <laughs> Dead. <laughs> Just honest. Give me your card. (laughs) I was just curious from your point of perspective perspective as a German minister, um, how would a European defense um, union look like in 2025? Okay. Okay. Thanks. Yes, European Union in 2025. Um, Perhaps I start with the Jordan-Lebanon question. Um, and uh, the role of Europe. Uh, First of all, um, 
you asked me a very a large question about the sources of the refugee flows. Um, Germany and Europe, we have learned a necessary but very bitter lesson uh, in the years 2015 and 2016. Um, if I just uh, tell you a small story, when in 2015... Uh, I'm a member of parliament. We went into the summer break in the parliament. That was June, July 2015. We had one topic that was dominant. That was the question within the euro crisis, whether Greece would get its third package of uh, subsidies and support financially for the euro crisis. That was on on the top of the agenda. Eight weeks later, the top topic was refugees from Syria and uh, Iraq mainly, but also Afghanistan and other countries. So um, we had, we, we, the, the refugee crisis hit a country and a continent and the European Union that were not at all prepared to all that. And then we started the public debates about uh, how to deal with it. And you, you, you remember those years. To make a long story short, what we had to learn as a government, as a country, and what we have to tell our public is, of course we need a control of the out external borders of the European Union because it's absolutely natural to know who's coming in and who's leaving, speaking of foreign fighters, for example. Of course we need to find a common agreement about what is asylum, and the ones who are eligible for asylum need to be granted asylum in Europe, period, But what is economic migration and people who have not the right to um, get asylum in Europe? But then, and that was a tough question, we had to talk to our public too to tell them if we want to stop that difficult situation, we have to work in the countries of origin, which means, of course, fight terror, which means, of course, and that is the second lesson that had to be learned, invest, 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 and once again invest in those countries. Because um, the moment you kind of try to stop migrant flows, the first thing which you do in those places is, if there is no more human trafficking, you take out income, as bitter as this sounds, because the migrants are no more in the region who generated in very, very poor regions income. So you have to invest to have alternative incomes and to give people a perspective to stay in their home countries. On top comes power politics by, yes, China blocking in the Security Council, but Russia um, getting into the civil war in Syria too. And this is the second lesson that was learned. Of course, Russia went into a vacuum left in Syria because of the U.S.-American pulling out, more or less, which is something where us Europeans should not judge about, because where were we? We weren't there neither. Neither as a part of negotiators, neither as a part of stabilization, the, um, the Syrian Democratic Forces, for example, neither for reconstruction. So when I'm talking about that, I know that there's a deficit on our side, too. And it's a bitter story, but it is as um, you saw it. Now, one step forward. There is one place, and only one place, 
where over time, when you have all these different players in the region, like Turkey, China, Russia, the coalition against terror uh, of the Western democracies, and so on, Saudi Arabia, Iran playing its role in Syria, there's one place where you can find a solution, and these are the United Nations. It is the Geneva process. Um, you only can manage these different interests if you have one neutral place to discuss it. Therefore, I, I uh, commend that um, there has been the resolution now. In, finally, in the Security Council, it has to come to life, of course, not only on paper. And to give you an idea, if you look forward, one day we will have to reconstruct and reconcile Syria. Russia will never be able to finance that. Others will have to join. And this will also be a solution over time to find a negotiation table on which you can find a solution that is fruitful for the whole region and not as disastrous as it is at the moment being. Completely different te- uh, topic, PESCO. Um, no competition to NATO, but complementary. We are in a process right now um, for all those who do not every single day deal with (laughs) security topics and terms like PESCO. Uh, You must know that NATO was and is dominant, dominant, and once again dominant. And the Europeans were and still are 27, 28 different countries fragmented what security matters are concerned and not at all well organized. And I'd say no one ever gave a dime on European defense. I told you about the wake-up calls we got, what the Brexit is concerned, what uh, the, the, the attitude of the, the American president toward NATO is concerned, which really frightened the Eastern European countries because all of a sudden they realized, whoa, NATO is obsolete, what does that mean for me? So where's the European Union? How can I join the European Defense Union? And all of a sudden, something happened, which always is typical European. You need a huge push. You need a real crisis before we move forward. We started the European Defense Union. The fact that all of a sudden we hear skeptical tones out of NATO is a good, is a compliment. Because it shows that they're realizing, NATO's realizing, oh, something happens. Um, The Europeans are moving forward. As a minister of defense... And this is the second part of the story. I have two hats. I am a NATO member, and I'm a member of the European Union, and I have one single set of forces. So it's in my interest and in the interest of the 20 countries that are member of the European Union, PESCO, and member of NATO, <clears throat> to harmonize the planning processes so that we work together. We have one single set of forces. And we can send the soldiers to NATO missions, to European missions, to United Nations missions, but we should harmonize our processes. And this gives the guarantee that there will be no duplication. Third point, what is our task? Our task is to explain it over and over to our American friends, our Canadian friends, our Norwegian friends, because um, only trust and confidence will be a fruitful soil for an ongoing complementary cooperation between NATO and the European Union. There are so many conflicts. You need so many actors that we better work together. 
Last and third point, European Union, uh, European Defense Union in 2025. We will have the army of the Europeans. Not an European army. This is something different. A European army would mean somebody in Brussels says all the soldiers or the military forces of the European Union should move left or right. No. But the European army is an army that is wholly, uh, totally integrated and interoperable with the different troops and uh, ready to be deployed, that we have a process where we analyze and plan and then decide politically together immediately when a crisis hit, and that we are fast. So the army of the Europeans is the goal for 2025. Very good. Okay, I've got the young lady in the middle here, the gentleman behind her, and then the gentleman in front. Well, uh, Honourable um, Minister, thank you very much for today's speech. I would like first to tell you that, uh, well, I'm Laura, I'm from Armenia, and I didn't work in the ministry, but I worked in the Parliament Defence Committee, so, and um, I'm here today studying at War Studies Department at King's College, actually, and it was very interesting to come here, uh, because you are kind of encouraging figure for all females studying in security defence fields, like being the first female defence minister in Germany, and one of the rares in the world, so thank you very much for being an encouraging figure, and and now we're talking uh, about Germany, about European um, Defence Union's future. And as you said, you talked about also the differences with NATO. You talked about your partners in Afri Africa, that you see different role for that, uh, that of the NATO. So what role do you see uh, for European Defence Union in your eastern neighbours, eastern partnership countries mostly, and also in Nagorno-Karabakh region? So do you see any role of them in involvement? And also being from Armenia, I would like to ask you, like Germany is our first trade partner among EU countries, and uh, what directions do you see for Germany-Armenia defense cooperation in the future? Thank you very much. <laughs> That's very specific. <laughs> you can pass the mic behind you. Next round of questions, I'll go upstairs. So, uh... Uh, thank you very much for your speech, Nicholas Marx, aviation management student. Um, just one question, because you talked about aligning uh, defense and security uh, with humanitarian aid. So my question would be, if you plan to have a European army in the end, how would the defense union then look like, and how would the spending be aligned also mm -hmm. in this union? Thank you. And then the gentleman in front of you. Um, my name is Peter Barnes from the British German Association. We are a charity that promotes better links and mutual understanding between the UK and Germany. My question is, um, what role, if any, would you like the UK to be playing in European security and defence after mm -hmm. Brexit? Yeah. Um, okay. Just to start with the last question, um, a strong role. And once again, for all of you who aren't on a daily basis in this business, um, the Brexit is... It's a pity. I'm really sorry about it, but it takes place. Uh, <laughs> what should I say about it? <laughs> what I wanted to say is um, we have very, very close ties and bonds in the European Union with our British friends in many, many fields, like the common market. You know about that. Um, 
in defense matters, as I told you, nothing ever really grew because there were um, factors that blocked any development of European defense. And we had all the time NATO. Mm. So there is little to separate, uh, if I may say so, with the Brexit in defense matters. That's within a sad story. It's a good news. Um, second, we have traditionally very strong bilateral ties and bonds and a very strong foundation of bilateral uh, defense cooperation in any field. So I just, I, I just come from the MOD and met my colleague, Kevin Williamson. So we just talked about intensifying that on a bilateral way, which is very important. And of course, we are, both of us, in NATO. NATO is the strongest military alliance of the world and will be it. Europe will never be a military alliance. It's com something completely different. So um, in defense and security matters, we share the same values. We have the same ad adversaries. We have a lot of information to share with each other. It's an, our common mutual interest um, to, to work as close together as possible. Second uh, question was uh, the European Defense Union. And um, development aid and military, where is the gentleman who asked me that question? There you are, there you are. The European Union has a huge toolbox of um, development aid and civil instruments. What it lacks are the military instruments, non-organized, as I said, 28, soon to be 27, fragmented um, different military forces who are not in or poorly interoperable. So we have to do two things. First of all, get organized in the military part, which I told you we just founded the European Defense Union. And the second most noble <coughs> task is to um, really harmonize the cooperation between the military and the civil tools. Because as I told you, in reality, outside in the crisis re regions, um, I mean, uh, you will never win peace over time if you don't fight the terrorists um, and if you don't reconstruct or develop the country at the same time so that people have a perspective at home in their country. So both have to be together. And that, on the other hand, is the strength of the European Union because uh, there is no other um, composition of 27 countries with such a wide toolbox of different um, uh, tools of diplomacy, of economic development, of soon-to-be uh, military forces that you can apply at the same time from one hand. What we will need on top is, in our foreign policy, the European foreign, foreign policy, basically the same process as we had it now on the defense side, because we have a hard time to speak with one voice and to be fast. So we're thinking about perhaps moving towards a majority vote in diplomacy and foreign affairs so that you can respond rapidly to crisis, speak with one voice, one European voice, and you cannot be blocked by the one country who doesn't want you to utter anything in the direction Europe wants to speak. Armenia. 
Where is she? There you are. So, um, first of all, we need women in security and defense. If we talk about crisis and consolidation of crisis, of course you need both parts of mankind. So, both halves of mankind, you need men and women. And uh, actually, uh, just if I may say so, uh, there is a lot to catch up in uh, the defense field. Uh, what the participation of women is concerned and uh, the input of women and also what the career of women and the whole defense and security sector is concerned. Um, this is still quite a way to go. In the armed forces in Germany, we have at the moment being 11% are women in the armed forces overall. So still a lot to do. <laughs> and uh, welcome to the club, if I may say so. <laughs> what Armenia is concerned, <laughs> what Armenia is concerned, um, the European Union is the European Defense Union is now just after having uh, started thinking about how to give access to third part countries because it's always good to have partners at your side for the different topics in the world where you're acting so we are f talking about the rules of being we have the legal frame, that is the so-called PESCO, the Permanent Structured Cooperation. Within this legal frame of the European Defence Union are specific projects. And we're talking about um, opening the door to third-party countries to be part of specific projects. I was talking about European Med Medical Command. Um, perhaps there are medical doctors uh, from Armenia who want to join because uh, they have a perfect environment they would never find otherwise, and skilled personnel is needed, just to give an example. So there are many, many different topics from deployable troops as a project down to cyber, for example, you name it, and uh, these might be options for countries to join. Okay. I'm going to go upstairs. Wow. <laughs> okay, I'm going to ask you to keep your questions really brief. Uh, let's see, the gentleman to your right, and then I'll take uh, the gentleman up here, and then I'll take, oh golly, uh, I'll take a woman. I'll take you in the middle there. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you very much. My name is Jan Paul. I'm an undergraduate in government economics um, at the LSE. My question is, could you briefly um, and quite specifically uh, evaluate the role of a European common security and defense policy for the Balkan states? and address whether there an overlap between NATO and such um, could question their security. Thank you very much. Okay, and we have someone here. I think most uh, sensible people would agree that uh, European defence cooperation is intrinsically a good thing. Um, but doesn't it miss the main issue, which is the uh, rather shamefully low spend on defence by individual European countries? And I'm sorry to say Germany spending just 1.2% of GDP against a 2% NATO target and sort of the consequential lack of capability in terms of main battle tanks and submarines is probably a big culprit in that. Sure. And the lady in the front. Hi, my name is Celine Eding from Berlin, and uh, my question is you ended... Um, hi. <laughs> you ended with the sentence that you encourage us to make a Europe our Europe, and I'd like to know what do you think that us, and many of us maybe don't work in the defense uh, ministry, but do other things. What can we do concretely as young uh, Europeans yeah. in our daily lives to do this? Yes, be an advocate for Europe. This is the main... Um, I, I was born in Brussels. My father was a German, of course, 
Um, and I kind of inherited from him the European idea. Um, he, was, he was born in 1930, so he was 15 years old when the war ended. He had seen all the horrors, but, uh, and he was, I mean, 15 years old. You start with a deep, deep, deep devastation uh, in your young life. Then he had the privilege to be an exchange student in the United States, which was fantastic at that time, two years later. And then he started as a civil servant in the upcoming European Union. It was the very first steps in the European Union. He was a civil servant, a European civil servant, at the time when the uh, Treaty of Rome in 1958 was signed. So he went all the way up uh, or brought forward this European idea. And I kind of, I say I inherited it from him, and I remember I just took it for granted, and it was nice to have, and of course it was, it was there. I would have never thought that we one day come in a, or are in a situation where all of a sudden Europe is questioned in its core values. I mean, four to five years ago, would we ever have thought that there are parties in our European open societies that want to have a nationalistic approach, who want to leave the European Union, who want to um, go into protectionism and nationalism, and all these ideas come from within our European democracies. I would never have thought that. And today, four to five years later, having Pulse of Europe all of a sudden as a movement, I realize somehow each generation has to build up its own Europe. My Europe is no more the Europe of my father and my mother. Of course, I build it, or we build it, on their shoulders. And your Europe will not be the same as my Europe today. So you have to rebuild and rethink your Europe again. But this is a wonderful task because it's up to you to do that. And you are the ones who will have to design the new Europe. You will be the ones who have to advocate for the new Europe and your Europe. And therefore, it's up to you whether you will have it or not. And I hope for you that you can live within a Europe. Defense spending. Mm. Um, you're right. Uh, Germany has a defense uh, budget of 1.25 of the GDP. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> we came... Uh, I've, I've just looked it up. Uh, at the end of the Cold War, when the wall came down, we had a defense budget of 2.4%, sitting behind the wall, in no mission at all. So, and nobody was scared of us. Western Germany. That's what I tell my people. So then we had 25 years after the reunification where there was budget cutting, 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 smaller armed forces reduction over the, a quarter of a century, um, this happened to most of the European armed forces because we had the impression and illusion 
it's going to be more and more peaceful around us and it's going to go on like that. We know today this wasn't the case. We called it the peace dividend. Dividend, you know that word. So um, two years ago, three years ago, all the things happened. I was talking about Russia, ISIL, migration, Africa, cyber, and so on. So what we did now in Germany two years ago is a turnaround, a rise in budget, a rise in personnel, a rise in material. But you cannot fix within two years what has been reduced and cut down over 25 years. So the whole filling the gap mechanism and process and the whole modernization process will have to, be, um, will have to go on over years in Germany and many, many other countries too. That's what we're debating. That's the reason why I am happy to be for a second term defense minister because I have the impression of unfinished business. I started a lot of reforms. Not everybody is happy about these reforms. Nobody, <laughs> people never like, <laughs> people, nobody expected me to do all these things. But uh, people, transformation on paper you love, transformation in reality <laughs> is a bit more difficult, so I have to convince the public, I have to convince my finance minister, and I have to work hard that we fill all these gaps. And therefore, um, I think it is the right move as Europeans to get our act together. We have to invest more in defense. Um, mainly, if we have one, if we move forward to have one common set of military material, not the fragmented armored forces we have right now. It's mainly an investment at the very beginning. You have to make it. Later on, you will have the economy of scale in 10, 15, perhaps 20 years. But now you have to invest. And that's the debate we have at the moment in Germany, in NATO, all over the place. Okay. I think Na NATO, EU, Balkan? Oh, yes, yes. Um, there was a question whether there is overlapping. Well, the story goes for the Balkan states uh, like for any other ones. A lot of European Union is needed. NATO, of course, is needed. As I said, NATO is collective defense. Um, we are, Germany is the second largest troop contributors to NATO, actually. For the gentleman, the second largest troop <laughs> contributor to NATO. <laughs> Number one is, guess whom? The United States of America. So NATO is also a question, not only on how many percent of GDP, and my problem is my high GDP, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> each, each time I have a raise in the budget, the GDP goes... Up, and there I stand again with my percentage. But, um, well, um, I think we have to, to have the debate also in NATO that what is the outcome. So percentage of defense spending is nice, but if you, it comes to missions and activities in NATO, you need troops, and you need troop contributors. And uh, uh, as I said, NATO... Um, in the Balkans, NATO in the Baltic states, NATO in Poland. Uh, all these are typical NATO um, tasks, that is collective defense. But of course, there are many, many other European topics um, that are relevant for the Balkans too. 
And those countries of the Balkans who are member of the European Union are all of them member of the new European Defence Union too. So um, I don't see the problem of overlapping, but I see the task of harmonizing our NATO and European Defence Union uh, planning procedures. Okay. Maybe just taking off, I might ask uh, a question of you. In the economic space, uh, Europe has had throughout the Eurozone crisis and the aftermath, a tension between an intergovernmental approach versus a more federal approach mm. where you pooled resources and risk. Do you think in the military space and in the defense space, it might be easier to pool resources and risk given the way militaries operate and the fact that they have practiced coordination under the NATO umbrella uh, and they have a notion of a clear line of command which, frankly, in the economic policy space, mm-hmm. we don't have. Yeah. Might, it be a, might you make faster progress in security cooperation than we have on the economy? I think so, uh, definitely. And you just um, designed one of the reasons, which is interoperability. And we are in, in multinational missions. For example, in Afghanistan, Germany is the lead nation in the north. We have 20 other nations With you. under our umbrella. Um, and we are used to that. But a second point is relevant too. Uh, whether you talk about fighter jets or submarines or ships or uh, tanks, the, the, the projects are so humongous and so expensive and so complex. There's no country that is able to do it on its own. So you're forced to, to invest and to cooperate and to find ways so that you are well organized uh, to, to get, go into this procurement business of the future. Mm. Okay. Do we have time for sure. a couple more questions? Sure. Right. I'll take one from the up and one from down, maybe. How about uh, the gentleman there? And I'll take the gentleman in the back there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, hello, my name is uh, Felix Kufus. Hi, I'm studying uh, comparative politics. I'm doing my master's here at LSE. Um, I would like to ask you a question regarding um, what you said earlier, how important it is that um, humanitarian and military missions must go hand in hand. So I used to work for the German diplomatic service in Afghanistan and Pakistan, and what I remembered from that time was um, that especially the humanitarian side of that mission was very much emphasized. Was very much? Very very much much emphasized in the public discourse. Um, from, from the yeah. politician side, because uh, in Germany, as always, like, military engagement is uh, very unpopular. This had a very bad effect. I had the feeling at that time, I'm speaking about 2009 to 2012, on the military mission on the ground, because highly required um, increase of manpower, highly required increase of military equipment and those sorts of things, um, were denied um, from the political side yeah. to make this mission not appear as a war. So I have the question now, how you want to change the political communication of um, yeah, German military um, engagement in the world in a time where we want to increase our responsibility in the world? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the gentleman in the back here. Yes, uh, right there. Hi, you, I'm sorry, Fred Studeman from the Financial Times. Um, you referred to the wake-up call of 2016. One of the things that got fed into that discussion um, on the margins, I admit, was uh, whether Germany needed to acquire a nuclear capability. One of your uh, 
party colleagues was pushing this. That has since obviously has receded slightly. But I just wonder, given that there seems to be a sort of move to more nuclearization in the defense space, whether that is part of your um, European vision or your vision for a European defense capability? Definitely not. Where do you see... Let (laughs) let me rephrase it. Where does nuclear figure? We have... uh, No, no, no. we will not change anything uh, what that topic is concerned in... uh, uh, You're familiar with the topics, what uh, Germany's role, the uh, French role, the American role is within that complex. So uh, no no, uh, change is planned at all. Um, Human humanitarian missions and uh, the possibility uh, to communicate within the German public mainly um, the necessity of military action. You're right. You might remember uh, that at the Munich Security Conference in the year 2014, that was early in February, we had the new grand coalition. Frank-Walter Steinmeier was Minister for Foreign Affairs, uh, Joachim Gauck was president in Germany, and at the opening of uh, the, the Munich Security Conference, I was in office for four weeks, uh, all three of us instinctively said the same, that Germany has to be ready to take over more responsibility in all our, these fields. We had afterwards a fierce debate about that, what that means. Then the reality kind of struck us, that was four weeks later, um, Sochi and then the annexation of Crimea. Four months later, ISIL, with all the consequences um, I was talking about. Since then, we have more discussions and debates in Germany about the necessity that, as I said, with ISIL, you can't negotiate. There's nothing to negotiate with that terrorist group. You have to defeat them militarily at the very beginning. And then afterwards, um, you have to come with the reconstruction, reconciliation in the country too. Still, compared to other countries, I must say the debate is at the beginning and not very mature. And it's my task always to explain over and over again that both go together, stability and security. The good story behind it is in Germany, for those who are German, that um, in the last term, the minister mainly for economic development, development aid, we have a ministry for development aid in Germany. And me, myself, we've been working very close together, uh, which has never been the case before, that those two ministries work together. And now we have a coalition treaty in which is fixed that um, whenever we raise the budgets on both sides, the ODA quota, which is economic development, development aid, humanitarian aid, and defense, the rise is one-to-one the same in the amount, which is good for both sides because we are no competitors anymore for funding. But all of a sudden, we have a common interest (laughs) to tell our people at home, we need (laughs) budgets for the external, if I may call them so, Uh, external um, uh, and foreign activities we do have. So at the beginning, this discussion, but going in the right direction. Very good. Very good. Well, 
Dr. Ursula van der Leyen, thank you so much for that wonderful talk. Welcome, and it was lovely to have you back at your university. Uh, and as you can see from the composition of our audience, uh, the ties and connections between Germany and the LSE are vast and extensive, and long may that be the case. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you very much.